Hi, everyone. If you enjoyed the intro track, thank Tom Back, who spoke at the Day of Learning last Wednesday and blessed us with his music. He played two songs, one at the beginning that you just heard by Fleetwood Mac and one at the end, which I'll play at the end. Welcome to the first podcast of April. So it's only fitting that we start Autism Awareness Month or Autism Action Month by sharing a recap of last week's Autism Science Foundation Day of Learning. The videos will be up this afternoon, so you can watch them yourself, but hopefully this podcast will give you a taste of what each presentation was about. I'll put the link in the podcast summary for the actual videos you can watch on your own. The lineup summary started with Susan Daniels, who's the National Autism Coordinator, a role created by Congress to facilitate coordination and implementation of autism activities across federal departments and agencies. She's also the director of the Autism Research Coordination at the National Institutes of Mental Health. She oversees strategic planning, policy, communications, and operations for the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, which was first established in 2009 and continues through renewal every four years. There are 23 federal members on the IAC and 21 public members, and it's an advisory committee. The IAC is a forum or a neutral territory, as we call it, and those of us in the IAC call her the presidents of Switzerland in this role. She facilitates collaboration, cohesion, and community in the IACC. What word is missing here that everyone asks me about in the IACC? Funding decisions. The IACC does not actually fund anything. They create a strategic plan to help guide federal as well as private organizations like ASF on how to spend their money. And ASF reports back, just like every other organization does, on what we funded to see how it fits into the overall strategic plan. The IACC does not make us spend money in a certain way, and they don't control how federal agencies spend their money either. They, I guess I should say we, since I'm actually on this committee, make recommendations. The IAC works by convening every few months, coordinating activities, and I should say as a rule, ASF does not duplicate or replicate anything anyone else is doing. It gathers ideas from the community, it develops a strategic plan, and it takes and makes advice and recommendations to the Health and Human Services. If you want to learn more, the IACC is meeting in a couple weeks on April 13th to 14th in the afternoon and talking about housing and communication and autism. Please Google Autism IACC and you'll be brought to the page where you can register for the meeting. There's always amazing scientific discussions, so I hope you can join us. The next speaker talked about what is on the mind of many families affected with autism, how many people in the U.S. as well as internationally have a diagnosis, and have the numbers been increasing? Well, we know the most recent estimates put the number at 1 in 44 children, which probably means adults in the U.S. The speaker was ASF-funded researcher Matthew Maynard. I should say he was funded 12 years ago, but we still consider him an ASF fellow. His talk was funny and engaging, but unfortunately remote. We were trying to exhibit social distancing at the event, but the CDC didn't want to risk anything by having Matthew travel to New York, so they kept him in Atlanta. He talked about ADAM, the Autism Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, which does the counts to get to that 1 in 44 number. Under his guidance at CDC, they've moved from more of a send clinicians to every school to do a record review methodology to 
What do kids in real schools have a real diagnosis of methodology? Now, this could include real-life community-based diagnoses, but it's also a faster method and can get findings out to the community quicker. He showed a few graphs that looked at the cumulative incidence of autism, the numbers of cases across time added up together by four years and eight years. And he found that there is a lower age of diagnosis in the four-year-old group. It seems that clinicians are getting better at diagnosing autism earlier. There is progress in that, but as we'll hear from Amy Weatherby, we need to do much more to get to the age at which people can actually diagnose autism, and that's closer to two years, not four years. As far as the prevalence increasing, well, yeah, it is. But there are some issues around race and ethnicity and age. For example, black children with autism are more likely to have intellectual disability compared to white or Hispanic children. The way I interpret it, and please prove me wrong, is that black children may get missed unless they have an intellectual disability that's probably harder to ignore. Why is this the case? Well, there's booklets and booklets and journal articles and books about things like bias, cultural norms in the black community, including things like lack of services and probably more. So what's going on in the CDC in the future? Well, they're looking at teenagers now and the prevalence of teenagers. And they're also looking at the prevalence specifically of those who have profound autism. They also have an interaction visualization site. And the CDC has a free milestone tracker. This is especially important for new parents. I'll be talking about the CDC milestones in another April podcast. So stay tuned. Now, of course, the ASF Day of Learning could not go without talking about sex differences. Dr. Maynard mentioned a four-to-one disparity in diagnosis in males compared to females. Why is this? Well, this has been a topic of interest by ASF, and that's why we were thrilled when the Simons Foundation committed $28 million to five projects over four years to look at the biological basis of sex differences in multiple ways. So while diagnosis and masking issues are one thing that our next speaker talked about, biology is the other thing that she focused on. And this person was Bridgetta Gunderson from the Simons Foundation. So what could be going on biologically? Well, there are multiple avenues that they're looking into. First, females have two X chromosomes and a male has an X and a Y chromosome. They're sex chromosomes. There's a gene on the Y chromosome called SRY, which is a testes determining factor. And when this is expressed on the Y chromosome, it leads to the development of male sex organs and brain development that looks like males. Yes, there is a male brain and a female brain. I want to make sure everyone knows here that there are basic biological differences in non-autistic men and women in their brains. So why would there not be in autistic men and women? It should not be about males with autism versus females with autism. It should be about the differences between males with and without autism and the differences between males with and without autism and a comparison of all those groups. We already know females have different patterns of brain activation and different genetic makeup. So why there are not more female-specific supports is an idea for the future. I mean, there are here and there, but not globally. Now, because females have those two X sex chromosomes, that means that if there's a mutation on one of the X chromosomes, it can be compensated for on the other X. 
if there's a mutation on the X in the male, they don't have an extra X to compensate. So they, e they end up with either a profound phenotype or those mutations are fatal, like in Rett syndrome. Finally, on the X chromosome, some copies may be inactivated because there are two copies, and if both copies were expressed, there might be overexpression. So there's a random process called X chromosome inactivation. And if the non-mutated copy is inactivated and only the mutated copy is there, that may lead to altered protein expression. In addition to sex chromosomes, males and females have different circulating sex hormones. For example, estrogen in females and testosterone in males. That may influence brain development and a long-term diagnosis and prognosis. Hormones bind to receptors within each cell and then that connection affects the expression of RNA on different genes, leading to different proteins. Speaking of cells, there are different cell types in the brain that may have sex different functions and be affected directly. Now, these can include neurons that turn cells on and off, or microglia, which are the support cells in the brain. Microglia also contribute to the plasticity of neural circuits. And there are sex differences which may affect expression of microglia, which affect synaptic plasticity and cellular repair. I promise you, we'll be telling you more about these projects as they publish. Many are led by scientists who received initial funding through ASF, and we're so happy that these projects are being taken to the next level. Next, we got a lot of feedback on this next presentation. I encourage you to watch it. And if you're intrigued enough, go to autismnavigator.com or babynavigator.com to sign up for regular, detailed information, booklets, webinars, and other resources about how this program works. The leader of Autism Navigator and Baby Navigator is Amy Weatherby of Florida State University. Now, she originally developed a program in 2007 to create a video library of infants at different ages who showed different behaviors that might be of concern to development. And she also showed those... She also showed infants at those same ages who went on to be typically developing. The goal was to provide parents with visual examples of what they should be seeing or what they might be seeing or not seeing in their infants to help them get to a developmental pediatrician or the right support right away. It was meant to empower parents to show them these are the sorts of behaviors that may be indicative of a longer-term autism diagnosis and compared it to those that this is how your baby typically should be behaving, the way they should be looking at you, the way they should be engaging with you, the way they should be moving their hands, the way they should be watching things around them. It started with autism behaviors in toddlers, but it's now expanded to babies. And the babies may or may not have autism, but the baby navigator focuses on tricks and ideas to help support their baby's natural development exploration, learning, and communication. Again, there are video examples and a guide called The Navigator, which helps parents step-by-step, issue-by-issue, topic-by-topic, concern-by-concern. Remember, 2007 was 13 years before the pandemic, so she was way ahead of her time in this. However, it really did take off during the pandemic when families couldn't get access to in-person assessments and didn't know what to do when they were locked up in their own homes. There are videos of what to look out for, what to do, and how to improve learning in your child regardless of the concern for autism, even in those earliest months. This is incredibly important because 
At best, children only get a few hours a week in a clinic. So when doing things at home using regular routines and skills like washing dishes, laundry, reading, and child-directed play really helps. What I really appreciate are the videos of parents helping their kids and directing their kids clean up their messes. I apparently missed that lesson. It coaches parents on how to teach their children on how to take a productive role in their child's learning, which can be done mobily over the internet. Earlier is important because in the two years, the first two years of life, babies form one million new synaptic connections per second. This is a critical period by which environmental influences and parent-directed support can really help later development. If you can help a child with better communication and learning through a more supportive environment, you can help them long-term. And that's what Dr. Weatherby is studying. There are so many different tools. There are hours and hours of videos, but you don't have to do them at once. If you're a new parent, go to babynavigator.com. If you're a first-time parent, you don't know what you're doing. If it's your second child that you may not know what's going on if things don't just seem right. Join us if you're a parent, a healthcare provider, a teacher, No matter where you live, you can access these videos. We have parents from all over the world on some of these videos. They have parents from all over the world getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to participate in these webinars. And it's especially important for rural families who may not have the same access to services as someone who, say, lives in New York City or Los Angeles, California. The important thing is to get this information out in a non-invasive way to as many families as possible for them to do at home. So after lunch, we switch to the theme of leisure activities. Leisure is so important, but what is it? It's time spent without the demands of survival, work, and sleep. So it's things that people find pleasurable and gives people satisfaction. That can be sports, video games, social activities, music, dance, and the arts. And they're not independent in any way. You can be interested in more than one. Engaging in these activities improves physical health, mental well-being, and family functioning. That was shown by Dr. Zoe Hawks, who used to work at Washington University School of Medicine and now is at Harvard. It improves the quality of life and can be leveraged to support satisfaction with family life. Now, we need to encourage people with autism to engage in more leisure activities because right now they're not participating as often, and this gap between those who are neurotypical and those with autism widens during adolescence. Leisure helps with independence as well as interdependence with others. Dr. Hawks spoke about not just the literature that was out there, but also about a program in Missouri she was a part of about building skills to ride a bike. After trying to learn how to ride a bike for a week, kids in this program showed in a significant improvement in motor skills acquisition, even if they had never tried to ride a bike before. And after five days, all of these kids learned how to ride a bike without training wheels or support, which is huge. As Dr. Hawks pointed out, leisure activities helps with independence as well as interdependence with others. She also described other programs like soccer. And these programs suggest that brief community-based adaptive soccer programs produce improved agility, kicking, throwing, And not just at the end of the training, but four weeks later. Tom Back, the last person to speak, which which I'll mention in a minute, was one of the leaders of 
scoring goals for autism, for which the Autism Science Foundation was a beneficiary of, and we're always grateful for that program. Also, in studies with a comparison group, the similar effects were seen in a comparative way to those who didn't receive the intervention. It improved aiming, catching, balance, and it also decreased anxiety and social problems. And the more sessions they attended, the greater the observed decrease in these internalizing behaviors. These results are promising and show that targeted, short, community-based programs are feasible, improvements are seen, and parents are satisfied. Expanding and generalizing these interventions are exciting and needed. So another leisure-based program that was described at the meeting was a tennis-based program. Richard Sperling presented. He's the founder of Acing Autism. He's a skilled tennis player himself. And he talked about the program, about how they were implementing this tennis training program and measuring improvement. He was a businessman completing his MBA when he started working in Boston with kids with autism. The Acing Autism program is a combination of lessons and skill building, but don't get me wrong, it's not the sort of lessons that Venus Williams gets from her coach, but literally things like bouncing a ball with a racket, throwing a ball, hitting a ball. Of course, kids with autism don't just learn the regular ways. He uses visual schedules and prompting, and he's developed a feasible program that focused on kids with autism. The mission is to allow kids to grow through physical activity and social connections in an affordable way. The curriculum also includes skills, but it does so by pairing each child with two trained volunteers to improve skills and incorporate social interaction between the participants, all while having fun. I went to one of the clinics near my house in South Orange, New Jersey. They were getting, they were learning skills. They were interacting with each other. The coaches were encouraging and positive. And then there was snacks afterwards. It wasn't too long of a day for anyone. And they even played things like red light, green light. Where can you find these programs? Acing Autism, they service 3,500 kids a year across the United States. And they're aggressively expanding, so keep an eye out. Now, what's interesting is they measure improvements in these kids using standardized instruments like the Vineland. The biggest improvement, of course, was in tennis skills, but there were also significant improvements in motor skills, social skills, engagement, and an improvement in mood. Parents loved the program and noticed improvements in their kids at home in terms of socialization and mood and peer-to-peer communication and overall health. Now they are in the process of developing their own measurement tool to capture what works and what doesn't work. They are working to expand, so please look out for one in your community. If there was one here, I would take advantage of it immediately. Finally, last but not least, my friend and longtime supporter of ASF, Tom Back, the one that founded Scoring Goals for Autism years ago, talked about his love for music. Tom is an undergraduate in music at Westchester University and gets services through the Dubsey Autism Program. He'll graduate in 2025 and he wants to go on to graduate school. He is majoring in music. He finds connections with others that love music. As a child, he loved the Wiggles. Now, who doesn't love the Wiggles? They're trained musicians. But he described how he could connect emotionally to music. Music like Wheels on the Bus and Barney's song actually made him feel angry. Later, as a musician, he identified that those single notes and repetitive intervals were were annoying. 
But those that made him calm were the Wiggles, which had an identifiable melody and chords and originality with an organized structure and a clear time signature of four to four. He didn't know it at the time, but now as a music student, he knows the difference and why. Tom was diagnosed with autism at age three. He received early intervention, but didn't attend a mainstream school. He went to the Vanguard School in Philadelphia, where he's met his friends. He also started performing at a music school called Rockdale Music. He's formed a band. Even he and his sister Evie had a band together, and now he has another band with friends he met at Vanguard or Rockdale. He started playing guitar at age five and then taking piano lessons at age 10. He explained that he loves music because it allows him to give back to the community. The song played in the introduction was Fleetwood Mac, and at the end of the podcast, he plays a song most of you will remember, Fire and Rain. The Fleetwood Mac song has always calmed him down since his meltdown in a car at age five when his mom put that song on and he calmed down. And at that time, he was also able to first put words together in a sentence. Now, before I conclude the podcast, I want to recognize the Karen Schwartzman Award winners who are individuals who have made a significant contribution to autism research in the community. Karen Schwartzman was a beloved advocate who not only fought to help her child with autism, but all of those affected with autism have better rights and science that helped support better supports. She passed away and her daughter, Allison, who is a sibling, was able to present the award to the two most deserving awardees this year. First, we awarded Samantha Ells, a recent college graduate and founder of Sam Sibs Stick Together. Sam Sibs Stick Together is a collaboration between the Ells for Autism Center and the Autism Science Foundation. She dedicates herself to helping siblings with autism share, understand, communicate, and gain a new community with each other. The webinars start focusing on science, but the discussions are directed on personal experience and how science can be improved from the perspective of the individual's families. The program has left a lasting footprint on the sibling community. The second award was made to Suzanne Wright. Suzanne Wright co-founded Autism Speaks in 2006 and made it okay for people to talk about autism, to talk about the joys and the challenges. She and Autism Speaks brought autism out of the shadows and helped self-advocates speak up, helped parents receive much-needed support, she built a community, and she provided the caregiver community more resources that it desperately needed. She died in 2016 of pancreatic cancer and was truly a loss. Now, I didn't know Suzanne well, but I worked with her at various Autism Speaks events. To me, she was a little scary. She had a huge presence in the room. She did not take no for an answer. She knew exactly what she was doing, and she wasn't going to stop until she got it. But she was loving and caring, not only to her own family, but the bigger family of Autism Speaks. She made a point to know everyone's name, to treat everyone respectfully and with dignity. At a chaotic time of the merger between Autism Speaks and NAR and CAN, that was much appreciated. And she never let go of the fact that families and individuals with autism were first and foremost. She comforted more parents than I can count, and she told thousands of people on the spectrum not to give up, that they could do whatever they set their mind to. So please watch the videos on the website. I'm going to post them in the podcast summary, and they'll be live later today. Thanks for listening. That's yesterday morning, let me know you were gone. Susan, the plans they made put an end to you. I want
walked out this morning and I wrote down this song. Just can't remember who to send it to. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you again. Don't you look down upon me, Jesus. You gotta help me make a stand. Just gotta see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand. I won't make it any other way. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you again. When waking my mind to an easy time, my back turned towards the sun. Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. Well, there's hours of time on the telephone line to talk about things to come. Sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you, baby, one more time again, yeah. Thought I'd see you one more time again. There's just a few things coming my way this time around, yeah. Thought I'd see you, thought I'd see you firing, yeah. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-